You're listening to the Banner Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. For more information, visit us online at thebannerchurch.com. Banner Church, we're so excited to have you here today on the 4th of July. My name is Jamin, if I haven't met you yet. And we're so happy that you came out on this holiday. I know that it's, it's a day where a lot of people are off on vacation, which is a wonderful thing. Rest is a great thing. And I, I really love the 4th of July. It's, it's one of actually my favorite holidays. I really enjoy it. Uh, the 4th of July to me, it, it's really something so special. I mean, as Christians, it, we always have to be careful to recognize, right, America is not the kingdom of God. So the, the celebration of our country is not the same as celebrating who God is and the kingdom that we're a part of and our citizenship in him. But I really am so happy to be an American. As you saw in the video there, my parents live in Thailand. Nothing made me more aware of that fact than a few years ago when I went and spent uh, some time in Thailand. When you go to other countries around the world, you realize that some of the freedoms we have here are really significant and special. They're in Thailand. They have a king still. Uh, when you go to the movie theater there, I went and saw a movie. Uh, before every movie, they force you to get up, stand up in the beginning of the movie, and they play a 10-minute documentary of the king's life, and you have to stand during the whole thing with your hand over your heart and watch the documentary and then pledge your allegiance to the king before the movie ends. And there's a law in Thailand that says if you insult the king at all, if you criticize him, even in like a private email, you can serve up to 10 years in prison. The fact that we don't have to deal with that here really is a blessing. How cool is that? That's worth celebrating the 4th of July. That's awesome. So I'm happy you're here. So much fun to be here on this day. Uh, We started last week a series called The Power of Praise. Pastor Josh got us started on this, and he told us a little bit about how we were created to worship, how we were commanded to worship in the Bible, and how important it is that we participate in worship both with our bodies and with our hearts, with our emotions and with our minds. Our whole being has to be engaged. He talked about the importance of singing, raising our hands, kneeling, physically getting involved in worship, how that actually changes us and transformed us. How many of you enjoyed that sermon last week? It was so good. So today, I'm going to be taking us forward just a little further into this series, talking about praise and worship. But today, we're going to be talking about uh, warfare, spiritual warfare. I'm going to get there in a second. One of the cool things about the sermon last week that I just loved was Pastor Josh's emphasis on the men in our church really engaging in that place of worship. You know, there's a tendency, you know, guys, they want to act tough. We don't want to show our emotions, even in worship. And so we want to stand there and kind of be stoic. Josh communicated to us that it was so important that the men in our church actually bend their knees in worship, actually engage in that space. My favorite line in the whole sermon, I don't know about you, but my favorite one was Saturday night, Saturday night might be for the boys, but Sunday morning is for the men. Amen? Woo! 
That's good. That is good. I, I was hanging out just a few weeks ago with some of the great young men here in our church with uh, Sean and Kevin and Chandler. If you've met them, they are incredible. And I was hanging out at, at Sean's apartment complex, and we sat down and at, around his pool there at the apartment complex, and we uh, made some barbecue. It was delicious. It was so good. And we were just talking about our faith, about who Jesus was in our lives. And we were sitting there, and a weird thing happened. As we're talking about all this, all of a sudden, this girl barges into the pool area. She like opens the gate, slams it open. She sees us sitting in the jacuzzi, and she just starts cussing up a storm, really angry. We were, we were taken back. We were all, oh my goodness, what is going on here? And she says, don't worry, it's not you. I'm not mad at you. I just, I came down here a few minutes ago to see if the jacuzzi was empty, and it was, and now you're here, and I'm not mad at you, but I, I'm just dealing with a lot right now. And we're like, oh, okay, that's fine. You know, we're, we're sorry. You know, we can leave if you want. She goes, no, it's fine. So she gets in the jacuzzi, and she's sitting there, and without us asking, she then launches into a big story about why she's so upset. We could not get a word in. And it was a fascinating little story she told us. She, she was really vague, but the, the two things she kept saying over and over again is, all my friends are narcissists, and they are not uh, equipped enough to win the battle of life. That's what she kept saying over and over again. All my friends are narcissists. They, they're not resilient enough. They can't win the battle of life. I, you know, I wish more people would be able to win the battle of life. And finally, after a few minutes of this, I finally got a word in, and I said, you know, I really love that metaphor you're using, the battle of life. I said, that's really interesting to me. I said, I, I'm curious, though, what do you think it means to win the battle of life? Is winning the battle of life finding happiness or something and she interrupts me right there and she goes bleep no and I'm like oh okay sorry <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what's going on here she says no it's not that she says winning the battle of life is this it is asserting your truth on the people around you it is making sure everyone around you supports your truth which I, I didn't say this but I was thinking ironically I was like you know that sounds like a really narcissist way to look at it. She's complaining about narcissism. But I, I do think, I do think that she's right in one regard, that this life is a battle. That this is a battle. That's actually a great way to conceptualize the type of world that we're in. Where she's wrong, though, is that winning the battle is asserting your truth over other people. I think, actually, the gospel teaches us it's the exact opposite. That the battle of life is not about making other people accept your truth, but it's about you coming under God's truth, submitting yourself fully to the truth, the way, and the life that is in Jesus Christ, right? That's really more where it is. I, I want to go in more detail today, talk to you about this, this idea of life as a battle. And there's two questions I want to answer today. The first question is, what kind of a war are we in? If we're going to win the war in the battle of life, we got to know what kind of a war it is, okay? And number two, how can worship help us win this war? These are the two questions. What kind of war are we in, and how can worship help us win this war? 
In order to answer these questions, I want to take a look at one particular verse today. Would you turn in your Bibles with me to Psalm 37? Psalm 37. We're going to be reading the first portion of this together. You know, the Psalms are such a powerful section of Scripture. Uh, it, it, one of the things that's so significant about it is that the Psalms is just a collection of songs. That's what Psalms really means. It's a collection of songs and poems designed to teach you how to worship. These are things that, that actually help form you as someone entering into worship of God. And they were written, as many of you know, by King David, or at least most of the Psalms were. Now, before we get into the actual verse itself, I want to set up a little bit of context with that, David writing the Psalms and what that means, because I think the context is going to reveal a lot of significant things in the verse as we read it. So bear with me just for a second. I'm going to give you a little background on this. So 10th century BC, Israel has just been formed as a new kingdom in the area of Syria-Palestine. It's uh, the promised land of God. God gave it to the Hebrew people after taking them out of slavery in Egypt. He allowed them to come into that land to take it over. And then he told the people, just trust in me. Trust in my law. But the people over the years began complaining and saying, you know what, all the other nations have kings, we want a king too. God tells them through the prophet Samuel, you know, if you get a king, you know what's going to happen? Taxes. Big problem. He's going to oppress you, he's going to put taxes on you, you're not actually going to like it, but the people are staunchly for it. We want a king. And so God says, okay, have it your way, I'll give you a king. God appoints King Saul to take over Israel and to lead them in their battles against their enemies. But Saul, after a few years of being king, turns away from God and begins to disobey him. And there's a problem here. The people of Israel are turning away, their king is turning away, and God comes to Samuel the prophet and says, I need you to appoint a new king. And many of you know this story. The new king that gets chosen is David, who's not in line for the throne. He's not royalty. He's just a shepherd boy living outside of Bethlehem, a little hodunk town in south Israel. He's out there with the sheep, and we only know two things about him. We know that he was a great warrior. He protected his sheep from bears and lions, only using a slingshot. I don't know how you do that. I would not be brave enough to do that at all. But he did it. He's a brave warrior. And then second, he's a worshiper. We're told that he was a really talented musician and that he wrote songs and that he spent his days with the sheep playing this music and worshiping the Lord. We're told in 1 Samuel that he was a man after God's own heart. So he's a warrior poet. And many of you know the rest of the story. He fights Goliath. He becomes a warrior in Saul's court. He becomes a musician in Saul's court. So he defends Saul from physical enemies. And also, it says, he plays music in Saul's court to ward off evil spirits from his mind. Again, this warrior poet. But the Psalms are not written during that time. No. A few years later, Saul becomes jealous of David. He tries to have David killed. And so David flees into the desert outside of Israel, and he is chased for eight years by Saul. And it's in that time in the desert 
David living in caves, running away from Saul, knowing that he's been chosen to be king, and yet he's in a cave, that he began to write the Psalms. So that's the context that we're in with this. So take a look at Psalm 37. Imagine David writing this in the cave as he's hunted by his enemies. He says, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil desires. Amen. One of the first things that this verse reveals to us is it answers our first question. What kind of a war are we in in this life? Look at that first part of this psalm. It says at the very beginning, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Now, keep something in mind here. David is involved in a real battle. His life is at stake. He is being hunted by enemies with weapons. And yet he begins the psalm by saying, don't worry about them. Don't worry about your physical enemies at this moment. One day they're going to fade away. The real battle is something eternal. Turn your mind away from the physical battle. Turn it towards the spiritual. The, the great truth of this verse is this, that no matter what battles you may be facing in your life right now, and I know that we're facing many, whether it be poverty, loneliness, anxiety, addiction, depression, oppression, or the threat of actual violence on your life, the real battle is, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, there, is, there may be wars and battles you're facing without, but the real battle of life that we're facing is within, within our own hearts. It's a spiritual war that we're involved in. Uh, many of you were here uh, about a year ago for our Angels and Demons series. It was an incredible series where we went through some of the logistics and, and the details of what do we mean when we say that we're involved in this spiritual war against powers and principalities. Well, how do we understand angels and demons and what's going on there? 
Well, I don't want to go back into all that because it's, it was a lot of information. If you'd like to go into the details of that sermon series, it's online. Go ahead and check it out. But one thing that we should keep in mind as we go through this is that when we look at the narrative of the Bible, from beginning to end, we see that there's a great war going on, and it's a civil war. That spirits that are created by God good, angels created by God good, have rebelled against God. And the essential rebellion has been this. This is the rebellion of Satan. As John Milton, the English poet, said, the rebellion is, I would rather rule in hell than serve in heaven. I'd rather rule in hell than serve in heaven. I want to be my own God. I don't want to submit myself to the authority of the God of creation. I want to do it my way. That's the rebellion. And that's the rebellion that Satan taught to our distant ancestors, Adam and Eve. He gave them the fruit and said, if you taste this fruit, you will be like God. You can be the master of your own universe. How many of you know this great lie is something that will destroy us. It's a horrible thing. And in all of human history, all the way up till today, is the story of mankind turning towards idols, towards things that are not God, trying to put their trust in other things, and it going disastrously. It's the long, terrible story of mankind searching for something other than God that will make them happy. That's the war that we're in. The war between the power of God and his authority and between the powers of darkness that want to take our souls away. It's interesting, uh, Jesus himself gives similar advice to his disciples, just like what David gave in his psalm. He says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him, Satan, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, that's kind of a fire and brimstone preaching right there. But that's not me, that's Jesus. Jesus is telling us that. Jesus says to his disciples, the cares of this world are not the real problem. The real problem is where's your heart? Notice with this that worship is at the very center of it all. The sin of Satan is that he would not bend his knee and worship God. The sin of Adam and Eve is that they would not bend their knee and worship God in that moment. And today we're still dealing with the same thing. That's the real war that's taking place. And everything else, all the other battles, are really proxy wars going on on the outside of it, okay? Uh, you guys still with me? I know it's a lot. I went heavy right there. Oh, we're talking about hell and demons. My goodness, what kind of a church is this, right? <laughs> well, moving on from that, we know what the war is. How can worship help us win this war? What does worship have to say about this? Go ahead and look back into Psalm 37. There are four things that G, uh, I'm sorry, that David commands us to do that I think are the perfect method for how to fight spiritual warfare in a place of worship. 
Here's what he says if you look carefully at the verse. There's four actions. Number one, trust in the Lord. Number two, delight yourself in the Lord. Number three, commit your way to the Lord. And number four, be still before the Lord. One more time, that's trust in the Lord, delight yourself in the Lord, commit your way to the Lord, and be still before the Lord. Four actions, and they all build on one another. So let's start with the first, trust in the Lord. Go ahead and open up your Bibles, or you can look up on the screen here at Psalm 37, verse 3. It says, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. The beginning step of all worship, of all worship, is the recognition that you're not God. Now that sounds really basic here, but it's actually a very difficult thing for us to do. Because recognizing that you're not God means that you recognize you're not in control fully of your life. The weight of your life and the things of this world, you can't actually control them. God is God, and His way is the only way, and you have to submit yourself to that and trust. It's an important thing. I think that this stage of worship is actually the stage that engages our minds. I don't know about you, but I, I, I've so many times in worship I've come in, and, and this might just be me, I don't know, but I've, I've stood in worship and I've sang the songs that are up here on the screen, and I've gotten through almost the whole song, and we're getting to the end, and I realize I've spent the whole song just thinking about how I'm going to pay for a car repair this week. I may have been singing the words, but my mind was not worshiping at all. How many, am I the only one? Okay, good, thank you. Make me feel better. Yeah, I'm not alone in this. Sometimes it's difficult for us to put our minds there because we're so focused on the worries of the world, on the things that are, are taking our attention, the sufferings of our life, the struggles that we're facing. And the first mode of worship is to say, you know what, God, I know I'm facing some big mountains, some big enemies. I, but I can't do it alone. I'm not God. You are. Putting your trust in Him. This is a difficult thing because, especially in times of great suffering, and I know I've been there, I'm sure many of you have too, in times of great suffering, it is so difficult to say, you know what, God, I'm trusting you in this time. There are many times when we deal with suffering that we say, God, what are you doing? Why are you not taking care of this? Now, keep in mind, David's aware of that. Where is David when he's writing this psalm? He's in a cave in the desert. He's been told, you're the next king of Israel, but he's not on a throne. He's being chased. He doesn't know the end of his story. He doesn't know where it's going. He doesn't know if he's going to be killed tomorrow or if the promises of God are actually going to come true. But in this moment, he puts his trust in the Lord and he says, you know, I know God is faithful. He's going to take care of me. It's interesting. This, this attitude is the same one that's given to Job. 
In the book of Job, Job encounters a ton of suffering. He has everything stripped from him, his family, his wealth, everything is taken from him. And then he questions God boldly, God, how could you let this happen to me? And God's response is so fascinating. God's response to Job is a long poem that basically says, where were you when I created the world? Are you God, Job? Were you there when I built the seas? When I made dry land? Will you be there in eternity, in the future? Do you know what's to come? Are you God? And the book of Job ends with Job saying, you're right, I'm not God. I put my trust in you. Now, I want you to imagine this for a moment. One of the best examples I've ever heard of this is if any of you have ever had to take your child or someone else in your family who's very young, maybe two or three years old, to the doctor's office, you know how difficult it is to explain to a little girl or boy the pain they're going to feel in the doctor's office. How many of you know that, especially parents? You've dealt with that before. You take a little two-year-old girl, you take her to the doctor's office, and you try to explain, okay, the doctor's gonna take a giant needle and he's gonna stick it through your arm, but don't worry, it's good. This is a good thing. And a, a two-year-old is not gonna be able to understand that. What do you mean it's a good thing? I don't understand. The difficulty we have explaining that to a child is because obviously, as adults, with you know, more reason than just a child, we can see the bigger picture, right? Child just sees the giant needle, and that's all they can really conceptualize. But we can see beyond that this is something that's good for them. They need this shot. It's ultimately going to be better. How much more is the difference between God and us as opposed to just us and a little two-year-old girl? Vastly different. Your mind is not God's mind. You cannot handle all the wonderful things that God has for you. There's no way. If you could see the picture, I don't know if you'd even believe it. But God has a plan and a purpose for your life. He's in control. And even in the times of suffering and in pain, he's there for you. And if you put your trust in him, he will do incredible things. Notice, though, in this verse as well, it doesn't just say, put your trust in God and then leave it there. Okay, how do I put my trust in God? David actually gives us a really good clue. He says in the second part of the verse, dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. What is the land? The land he's talking about is the promised land of Israel. The covenant land that was given to the Israelites as God took them out of slavery. It was his gift, his blessing to them. David is saying, dwell in the land of befriend faithfulness, that the way I find my trust in God is to look at the ways he's blessed me already and to be thankful for it. Dwell in the blessings and the faithfulness of God that he's already done. Let me tell you something, when you are thankful to the Lord, when you take time to really dwell on the good things he's already done for you, it up, uplifts your mind, uplifts your spirit, and allows you to put your trust in him. It allows you to actually put your mind in that place, because you have evidence that God will come through. 
So reflecting on that is so important. G.K. Chesterton, the great Christian author, said that thankfulness is the highest form of thought and gratefulness is happiness doubled by wonder. Thankfulness uplifts us. I experienced this just this year. This has been a difficult year for, for schools and for students. I, I'm a high school teacher, and my own students this year were having a tough time like really getting in to focus on school because of all the terrible things going on in our world this year. So I started near the beginning of the year doing something called Thankful Thursdays. And every Thursday, when we came into class, I said, okay guys, today's thankful Thursday, so we're gonna take the first 10 minutes of class, and we're just gonna go around the room and say one thing we're really thankful for. And I cannot tell you how big of an impact that had on my class. Thursdays became the best days in my classes of the whole year. So about halfway through the year, I decided, you know what? This is so incredible, the way that this thanks is uplifting my students. I think we need to make thankful Thursdays every day. So I started taking every day. Okay, guys, I need five things that you're thankful for. And I would just go around the room. I'd pick five kids. Give me one thing you're thankful for. And then we began our day. And it transformed the room. It transformed it. And I think that in worship, if we do the same thing, it'll take us to a higher level. First Peter chapter 2 tells us something very similar. It says, Declare the wonderful deeds of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Declare them with your mouth. Okay, so that's number one, trust in the Lord. Number two, we're going to go a little quicker here. We've got a lot to get through. Delight yourself in the Lord. Go ahead and look at verse 4 there in Psalm 37. It says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Once we have engaged our minds in worship through thankfulness, the next step is to engage our hearts. Worship is by its very nature deeply emotional. Your heart has to be caught up in it. And notice, David doesn't say, if you're feeling it, enjoy the worship. He says it as a command. Delight yourself in the Lord. Command your soul and your heart to experience the joy that is in Christ Jesus. How do we do this? Well, Pastor Josh actually gave us the strategies for this last week. David does it too. Sing. Engage in music. Let music take up your emotions. That's what music does. Music engages our emotions, even if it doesn't engage our mind. Allow the music to take you. Sing. Raise your hands. Dance. Kneel. What you do with your body will affect your heart. This is, this is not just a Christian truth. This is something that psychologists and neuroscientists recognize. Josh talked about last week about studies that have been done on people who sing in church versus people who don't. And people who sing experience chemical changes in their brain. It actually reduces stress and increases the chemicals that make you feel happy. How incredible is that? David didn't know anything at all about neuroscience. And yet he tells us in 41 of his psalms, sing to the Lord. 
delight yourself in him. 41 of his psalms. I think David was on to something. He was on to something. So we engage our hearts and we do this physically. We do this physically. Let's look real quick first though at the second part of this verse. What happens when you delight yourself in the Lord? There's a promise attached here. If you delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart. That's beautiful. What's going on here? It, we have to be really careful with this verse because it can be easy to read it as like a prosperity gospel. If you delight yourself in the Lord, God is like a divine ATM and he's just gonna shower whatever you want on you. You can just ask him for anything. He's, you want a new car? New car is gonna come right now. That's it. Desire of your heart right there. You know, God is not a genie. All right, you don't rub a lamp and make three wishes and they all come true. But it is true that God will give you the ultimate desires of your heart because when you delight yourself in him, you are training your heart to desire the right things. When David says God will give you the desires of your heart, what he's not saying is that God will give you what you think you want, but he'll give you what you really want. You may think that what you want is a new relationship. You may think that what you want is a new promotion or a new car. But what you really want deep inside is the security that can only be found in God. What you really want deep inside is the love and the praise and the honor that God can give you if you submit yourself to him. That's what you really want right? Now, I, I had a, a really funny moment uh, a few months ago. I, I work in kids' church. Delaney, our wonderful kids' pastor, doing such a great job down there. And we were talking in there about heaven. We, we were talking with the kids about heaven. They're all about five years old, five, six years old. And I had a little boy who interrupted this little talk that we were doing on heaven. And he said, Mr. Jamin, Mr. Jamin, I just want to know, will there be chocolate milk in heaven? Because I love chocolate milk, and I don't know if I want to go to heaven if there's no chocolate milk. <laughs> now, I, at first, I didn't know what to say to this. Is there chocolate milk in heaven? I, I have a degree in theology, and I didn't know how to answer that question at first. I was like, oh, man, is there chocolate milk in heaven? I, I don't know. And, and I had to think about it for a second, and finally, here's, here's what I told him. I said, you know what? I don't know if there's gonna be chocolate milk in heaven. But I do know this. Whatever it is that you love about chocolate milk will be in heaven. Whatever it is that's good about chocolate milk, the pleasure that you derive from it, heaven's full of that. So is there chocolate milk? I don't know. But the goodness behind it absolutely is there. So the desires of your heart, you may think that you're going to find it in things like our little friend, in chocolate milk. But God says that the real goodness behind it is so much more. C.S. Lewis uh, put this so powerfully in his sermon, The Weight of Glory. He said, we are half-hearted creatures. We, we don't desire enough, he's basically saying. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and with sex and with ambition when infinite joy is offered us 
like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. I think that image is so perfect. How often have we, in our ignorance, been like little boys in a back alley playing with mud and gunk, thinking this is where I find my true happiness. And God is saying, I wanna take you to a place where you can actually make real sandcastles. And we're like, no thanks, I wanna be here. This is what I need. And God is saying, I wanna give you the desires of your heart. You don't even know the glory that I have for you. If we put our trust in him, we delight ourselves in the Lord, we allow our emotions to be engaged in God, to ignite our desires for him, he will satisfy those desires. Amen? Okay. So the first two, put your trust in the Lord. Uh, uh, put your trust in the Lord, delight yourself in the Lord, and then third, commit your way to the Lord. Look at Psalm 37 verse 5 and verse 6 it says commit your way to the Lord trust in him and he will act he will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday once we've engaged our minds in worship and we've engaged our hearts in worship the next step is to allow what is happening in the moment of worship to invade every other aspect of our lives. Here's the reality, church. If your worship doesn't lead you to obedience, it's not true worship. I gotta say that again. If your worship doesn't lead you to obedience, it's not true worship. God wants all of your life not just your Sunday mornings. He wants every part of you, every part. You know, there's an interesting uh, moment that happens in the Gospels. It, we love to think about Jesus as, as an agent of peace, you know, and, and of course he is. He is the Prince of Peace. And, and uh, you know, but I think sometimes we get off when we think of Jesus just as kind of like a love everyone kind of hippie. You know, just like, oh, yeah, you know, the world's just good. Everything's fine. Jesus had fire in his heart. And one of the best moments that we see of that is in Mark 11, when Jesus chases the money changers out of the temple in Jerusalem. It's a fascinating piece of scripture. We're told in this story that, remember that the temple in Jerusalem was the center of worship for the Hebrews. The center of worship. But when Jesus went to Jerusalem and looked at the temple, his father's house, he saw that the temple had turned into a marketplace and that people were not giving their full devotion to God, but to money. And this angered him so deeply that he left the temple and we're told in Mark 11 that he made a whip out of leather and reeds. And then he returned to the temple the next day and cracking his whip at the money changers, he flipped over their tables and chased them out of the temple. That's intense stuff. Now, I mention that because in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul tells us, now that Jesus is risen, you are the temple of God. 
and the Spirit of God dwells in you. We, as the church, are the temple of God. And if Jesus was willing to take a whip to the temple in Jerusalem and to chase out the money changers, let me ask you today, you're his temple. What tables does God need to flip over in you? What does God have to chase out of your heart? There are so many things that have seeded themselves in our hearts. So many mindsets, so many sins, so many bad habits that have taken over us. And Jesus wants in the place of worship to chase those things out of you, to purify you, to sanctify you, to set you free from addiction, to set you free from anxiety, to set you free from all of the horrible things that have implanted themselves in your heart. He wants to transform your heart whole life every single piece of you when we commit our way to the Lord we're told in this verse again we have a promise attached God will act he will bring forth your righteousness meaning he'll make you righteous if you allow him as the light and he'll bring about your justice as the noonday Fourth and finally, fourth step we need to take in worship is to be still before the Lord. So we trust in the Lord, we delight ourselves in the Lord, we commit our way to the Lord, and then finally, be still. Psalm 37 verse 7 says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. The most important piece of advice that I've ever received in my life and that I think anyone could ever give you when it comes to worship or to other spiritual disciplines like prayer is simply this. Take the time. If you feel like you have not been able to make progress in your faith or in your prayer life or in worship, I want to challenge you. Take the time. Don't run away from the altar. Don't run out of church too early. In your morning devotions, when you sit down with the Lord, when you take that time, sit down and wait upon the Lord in patience. It takes time for God to do a powerful work in your life. And if you haven't seen him moved yet, that means you gotta keep waiting. Be still. Once we've done all this work, we come to Lord, we sing his praises, we put our trust in him, we thank him for his powerful deeds, we delight ourselves in the Lord, we sing and dance in his praises, we kneel before him, we say, God, I want to give you everything, I repent of my sins, I want you to transform my life. The final step is just to sit in silence and solitude and let the spirit of God deal with your heart. God will show up if you're patient for him. If you wait for him, he will show up. And again, in this verse, David repeats, again, don't fret over the evildoers and the enemies. Remember, David, he's dealing with some real enemies. But David tells us, whatever you're facing in your life, whatever battle it is you're in the midst of, if you will just sit still and be patient with me in times of worship, I promise I'll take care of you.
This is where we fight our battles. This is how we win the battle of life that we're engaged in. This psalm in particular is really special to me. Uh, about a year and a half ago, I started making the psalms the sole focus of my devotions every morning when I did devotionals. Typically, I would pick different verses every day, but, but I, I felt really convicted. I, you know what? I, I want to spend time in the psalms and learn how to worship really well. I planned to do it for about three months. I was like, I'm going to take three months, go through the psalms, and then move on to something else. A year and a half later, I still, every morning, have only been reading the psalms. There's something so rich and so deep in what David is saying that I felt like I just had to let the waters of what he's saying wash over me like the ocean washing over the shore. This last year, I found myself in a really hard, difficult battle. Uh, there was a lot of tension in my home between me and, and some of my roommates. Some, some really horrible things were going on. Uh, uh, and, and I felt, I, I have to be honest with you, dejected. I, I, I felt like I was out of order, out of principle. I, I felt like I was in a place where this, some of the problems that were around me seemed insurmountable. And every time I tried to engage in worship in that time, I did not feel it. I felt cold, gray. I felt like I was just going through the motions. And I felt fearful that God would not really take care of the situation that I was in. One day I went and I met with a spiritual mentor of mine and I was telling him about this situation and these problems that I was facing and this, these tensions. And he said to me, Jamin, have you read Psalm 37? And I said, yeah, I've been reading through the Psalms for about a year now. And he said, I think you need to read that Psalm again. Just read it over and over and over again. And I think something's going to break in your life. Something good is going to break out. So I took his advice and, and I went into my room the next day. And I just began to read the Psalm that we just talked about today over and over again. I just let it wash over me. At first, nothing happened. I wish I could say that right there and then things changed, but at first I, I wasn't feeling anything. I, I said, God, I, you know, I'm trying to trust you, but this is difficult. I don't know if I can trust you in this moment. I'm trying. That night I went to sleep and I had some of the most vivid, terrifying, what I think are spiritual dreams that I've ever had. In the middle of the night, I had a dream that I came out of my room, and in my house, all the floors had been torn up. There was rebar and, and dirt and pipes and all sorts of trash all over the house. And I looked around. I, I didn't know what was happening, and my roommates were in the kitchen just eating some food. I said, what's going on here? Do you guys know what happened? What is this? And they looked at it with indifference. They were like, oh, yeah, I guess, you know, we can clean that up later. I began to be terrified, and as I looked around, it, it grew. The, the ground began to tear up more and more. I saw the foundations of my house begin to break, and I didn't understand what was happening. And then I had another dream. In this dream, I was in my bed again, 
and there's a window right next to my bed, and in the dream, I heard a sound of scratching at the window, and I saw a hand reach up, pull the window back, and begin to reach into the window, into my room, and I was terrified. I woke up from the dream screaming in a cold sweat, and I didn't know what to do, so I got out of my bed, and I just got on my knees, and I began to pray, going through Psalm 37, Lord, I don't know what's going on, I don't know what's happening, but I need to trust in you. There's something wrong here, God. Lord, I don't feel joy right now, but I command my spirit, feel joy in Jesus, and I began to sing his praises. I began to say, Lord, if there's anything in me that's broken, if there's anything at all, Lord, attitudes I have are sins. Remove them from me. Take them from me. I only want to serve you. And I began to wait on the Lord there, three in the morning, just in my room, waiting on the Lord, praying, Lord, will you intervene in this situation? And I have to tell you, there was a complete transformation in my heart that night a complete transformation of my heart that allowed me in the midst of that situation, I think, to shine like Jesus to some of the people who were hurting me, to act with forgiveness and with, with, with grace towards them. And God actually fixed that situation in my life. He brought blessings into my home. Those foundations spiritually that seemed to have been torn up in my house, God relayed them. He brought blessing in that time. I believe today that God can do the same for you in the battles that you're facing. Would you all stand with me? I know that there are many in this room that are facing battles that you have no idea how you're going to win. I don't know what those battles are, but you do. So with every head bowed, every eye closed, I want to encourage you, focus on what that battle is, and then begin to do what David did. Don't fret over the enemies of this world. Give it to God. In just a moment, we're going to enter into time of prayer and worship. And Pastor Josh last week was talking to us about how important the altar is. That the altar up here at the front is a place where you can come in faith and act out your worship so that we can pray with you, we can fight with you. So I want to encourage you today, if you're fighting a battle in your life, if you want to fight that battle in worship, just like David did, to take a step of faith and walk up here to the front in just a moment and begin to fight that battle as we pray with you. I'm going to pray over you once. I'm going to count to three, and then we're going to enter into that time of worship. Lord, we know that you are bigger and stronger than anything that we could face in this world. We know that you are a good God who desires our freedom. You are a good God who desires to give us all that we truly desire, Lord. We pray in this moment as we step out in faith, as we put our trust in you, that you will not fail us, that your steadfast love would shine through our hearts and our lives. So now, Lord, on the count of three, three, I pray, Lord, that you would meet us. Two, Holy Spirit, begin to transform our hearts. One, Lord, will you meet us at the altar? 
here today. Come and join me, Banner Church.